Hello and welcome to a very special podcast birthday party to celebrate the first birthday of everybody's favourite piece of European legislation. It's MIFID 2. Yes, that's right. MIFID 2 has turned one. And for over a year now, IFAs have been grappling with its intricacies. Here to discuss the fallout is the Landcats, Mike Barrett. Hello, Mike. Uh, he has brought the ham, pineapple, chocolate and tomato sauce bir birthday cake, uh, which is a perfect metaphor of the rules we'll be discussing. In places delicious, in others cohesive, but overall complicated, and as our own research suggests, widely loathed as a format. Uh, Mike, terrible metaphors aside, thank you for being here. How are you? I'm tremendously excited to be here on such a prestigious day. Can't believe <laughs> our baby Mifid is one year already. Gosh, what a celebration, what a momentous moment. Um, Mike, as you well know, nobody comes on the podcast without doing a quiz. So I've prepared a quiz for you. It's dead easy, I promise. It's about people with a birthday on the 3rd of January, which is officially when Mifid 2 came into force okay. last year. Are you ready? Go for it. Okay, so the first question is about everyone's favorite Roman philosopher, Cicero who was born on the 3rd of January, allegedly in 106 BC. Some 2,124 years before Mifid II came into force, and some 2,086 years before the Sugar Hill Gang released Rapper's Delight. Little fact for you there. Uh, Cicero said that a room without what is like a body without a soul, Mike. What do you think he was talking about? I have absolutely no idea. It's books. Books. Uh, that's right. Cicero was an avid reader and is believed to have possessed many books, some of which he had probably written himself. Um, we're Philomena cunking it up here. It, it's get, gets better. Uh, number two, from philosophers to politicians, former PM Clement Attlee was born on the 3rd of January in 1883, some 99 years before Scottish alternative rockers Cocteau Twins released their debut album, Garlands, and a full 126 years before Tiny Temper released Pass Out. That aside, where in London was Clement Attlee born, Mike? Think sort of down the river, think rowing, think very picturesque, think peaceful London existence. Henley, mm, not that far down Not that river. far, Putney, Putney, actually. PM Clem was born just down the river from Westminster where he would become Prime Minister in 1945. Number three. We've you had need to get out more. I do need to get out more, that's correct. I should be going to the pub tonight. Anyone want to join me? We call it meeting room six. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien, the famous author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, was born in Bloemfontein, I think that's how you say it, in South Africa, in 1892, a full 127 years and six days before NMA Online producer Ollie Smith accidentally tweeted the words Rachel Riley from his work Twitter account. You remember that, Mike? Yes, I enjoyed that moment. <laughs> I just thought I'd put a, put a spike in that blackmail opportunity for you by owning it on air. Um, Legendary Bond actor and Scottish nationalist Sean Connery was offered the part of which character in the Lord of the Rings film? Think old. I've never seen a Lord of the Rings film. Really? Never. They're too long. Not No knowledge whatsoever of them? No. Mif Mifid's much more exciting. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's Gandalf. Connery turned down Gandalf because he had never read the books and quotes didn't understand the script, which is the most Sean Connery thing ever. Uh, tidbit for you as well, Nicolas Cage was also supposed to play Aragorn but passed up the part due to family obligations. You imagine him as Aragorn, like, ah, what's going on? Anyway, so we I'm we nil for three on the quiz so far. Nil for three. Maybe you'll get the final two. Um, you'll know John Paul Jones best as the bassist in which band, Mike? That's not the question. No. Led Zeppelin. He was born on the 3rd of January 2 in 1946 and is credited as a songwriter on Stairway to Heaven, their most famous hit. Um, which supergroup did John Paul Jones form in 2009? 
this is tremendously difficult. You're looking at me like, what the hell am I supposed to say? Uh, again, pass. Pass. It's them crooked vultures. Never heard of them. Never heard of them. So they were composed of Jones on bass, Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl, who you yeah. must have heard of, uh, and uh, the Queens of Stone Age's frontman Josh Homme. Have you heard of him? Yep. Good stuff. Very, very Zeppelin-esque sound, but actually not really my kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a bit rubbish, I'm honest. Um, maybe you can get this right. <laughs> We've had a musician, an author, a politician, and a philosopher. Here's an actor-director, Mel Gibson. He was born on the 3rd of January, 1956, making him 63 years old this year. Uh, he was born 48 years before Little Britain won Best Comedy at the BAFTAs and 36 years after the, resident of the, uh, the first resident of the newly constructed Wellwyn Garden City was housed. Uh, in 1999, Gibson was depicted in the Simpsons episode Beyond Blondie Dome, in which he mistakenly uh, takes advice from Homer Simpson regarding how his latest movie should be improved. But in that episode, did he do the voiceover for the character Mel Gibson himself, or did they get an impersonator to do it? I think he must have done it himself. He did do it himself. Hooray! Yay! Finally, Save a correct the embarrassment. answer. Uh, he, voiced, he voiced the part. He was a cameo appearance in the episode, which aired on September 26, 1999, uh, which was a full 11 years before NMA editor Will Robbins joined CityWire. Tremendous times. Tremendous times. Um, Mike, I'm pleased to say that in the quiz you got one point. Excellent. But it was quite difficult, and I'm sort of regretting it in hindsight, but I hope you've learned something. Yes. At least. Um, I'm hoping I'll learn something from you today. And we'll move on to our main section, which is obviously all about MIFID 2. Uh, we did some unscientific polling on Twitter, didn't we, of IFA's views on MIFID 2, the results we will look at now. Uh, we asked, how have, you been, how have you found implementing MIFID 2? Uh, I can reveal exclusively that 72 people responded, which actually isn't too bad for Twitter. The majority, 47%, said it was an absolute pain. 42% said it was tricky in places, but fine overall. 7% said it was easy peasy, no qualms. And 4% said they contact us privately to tell us their views in more detail. I might add, if you're listening to this, and, and we're in that 4%, that we've received nothing from you. So thanks a lot for teasing us on that promise. Um, Mike, why is it that a majority of IFAs have said that it's an absolute pain. What is it about MIFID 2 that is a bit onerous? I think it's 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 the delivery of the requirements in the main rather than necessarily the, the requirements themselves. Okay. So I don't think many many advisors, many participants we speak with actually have a problem with increasing transparency, mm. improving disclosure, um, improving some of the governance that exists around financial services. Mm. But actually, um, the scope of MIFID is so broad that it goes way beyond retail financial services and financial advice. But actually, some of the implementation of those of those themes has been has been really, really clumsy and hasn't been thought through well enough, I think, to to be aligned to exactly how financial advisors tend to work with their clients. Mm. So yeah, it's a bit, it is a pain in the arse, I think, for a lot of advisors. I see, it sounds like advisors think it's quite unbespoke. They don't really feel like it's specifically designed for them. You know, that they're in, they're in a big net with lots of other fish. Yeah, ex ex exactly, and um, particularly the nature of how financial advisors typically work with their clients, it's, Increasingly, it's increasingly a very professional industry. It's um, particularly when you look at kind of the improvements in qualifications that came out of RDR. There's no, there's little reflection of kind of the the professionalism that exists in the in my, amongst financial advisors, 
and the relationship that they tend to, to have with the clients and actually the behaviours that you want to encourage clients who are working with financial advisors mm. to, to be adopting themselves. Yeah, it, it feels, as I said, it feels a bit clumsy the way it's all been implemented. Um, some of the IFAs we speak to, they outsource their compliance services. Uh, do you think that it's led to an increase or decrease or any change at all in the way that IFAs stay compliant? Has it led some IFAs to just be like, well, I need to get someone else to help me out with this? Yeah, I think that there certainly is um, that, that approach for a lot of advisors. Um, we, we spend quite a lot of time speaking with advisors. We spend a lot of time researching what, what advisors are up to. And generally, we find that the advice industry, the advice businesses to be in a really positive state. So the demand for advice has never been greater. Pension freedoms has been a real catalyst for, for getting new clients in and working with existing clients for longer. Mm. But alongside that, if you look at kind of the numbers which advisor firms are posting, their revenues are growing, but the profit against that revenue is pretty stagnant and is actually starting to decline a bit. So that leads us to think that something is happening there and regulatory costs, regulatory issues are probably in the crosshairs around that, whether it's direct regulatory costs as a result of some of the changes that have come through or actually the cost of delivering your advice and processing, um, administering um, advice is it has been increased because of the additional work you've got to do. Mm. Um, it certainly seems to me that it, you know regulatory burdens are forcing some companies out of the market or indeed to sell up. Um, perhaps we can talk about that in a bit. Um, let's talk about suitability requirements and client contact. Um, under MIFID 2 there is this requirement to provide a client with an annual suitability assessment of any uh, instruments that are applicable that have a you know if you charge an ongoing fee for them um, but as we were saying before the format of this is not prescribed in detail is it so it's sort of up to individual firms to manage the process themselves um, do you think it's the case that most IFAs are already on top of this is there a wide divergence in how they're doing it or I think I think probably yes to all of that actually so I think most most advisors this wasn't a huge shock when it came in they were they're already, they were already working in this way with their clients and particularly since RDR moving into a fee-based world, they were naturally having more kind of, a, of an ongoing relationship with, with, with their clients. And for many, actually, a, a reasonably formal suitability assessment was, was occurring around that. I think the issue is, um, as you said, it's not, it hasn't been completely prescribed exactly how that should operate and exactly what the what the regulatory expectations are so advisors are kind of feeling in the dark around all of this and kind of working out what they think they should be doing and how their systems could could support all of that probably doesn't feel like that's necessarily an alarm bell and actually in terms of being compliant with the rules they're mm. probably there but it but this lack of kind of good practice and either from a regulator or a consensus amongst the industry around actually how all of these rules should be implemented is, is causing a few concerns, I think. Mm. Let's talk about prod, because that's all to do with suitability as well. There was this thing last year, I think the Lancat was involved in it, about highlighting that some IFAs out there, they weren't necessarily aware of prod. Um, where are we at with prod? Uh, it seems like there was a bit of a ruckus about it. Yeah, so we, we um, survey advisors, speak with advisors, well, pretty much every day, and we do a formal, formal research with advisors probably every six months now. Mm -hmm. um, I remember the early part of last year doing a survey with advisors and asking them, are you aware of the rules of prod? And the vast majority were 
what the hell is that? Never heard of it. Um, and obviously from that point in, it's very unlikely they're going to be compliant with anything. Mm. We did another survey around about October last year, and that's flipped around. So the vast majority are actually now aware of it. Um, presumably they're reading things like New Model Advisor to, to inform their, their thinking around it. And others, to and be others, fair. But, um, other lesser publications. <laughs> um, so yeah, the awareness is there, but also... Um, they're still kind of having got to that point, posing the question: Okay, how do I actually, how do I actually ensure that I'm I'm compliant? And again, I think it, it's kind of it's a gradual evolution of what they're doing, and mm. um, rather than kind of having to completely rip up and start again, that, that, that that's needed. But I, I noticed the the FCA Andrew Bailey were, were quoted um, a couple of weeks ago in a speech that he was giving that prod is something which is going to be on the regulatory agenda for this year, mm. and they're going to be going and looking at how these rules are being implemented. So I think it's something that advisors should should pay attention to if they haven't done already. So they're actually going to go into some firms. Mm. I don't think they they were explicitly setting out how. How they're going to do that, and I think it's yeah, it doesn't feel to me like they're going to be going out and kicking the doors down. But um, okay. I think the you often hear kind of you see comments sometimes that the FCA are unaware and they don't know what's happening with financial advisors and they don't listen to what the issues are in the market. Um, in, in in my experience, it's the exact opposite. They know what's going on and they are hearing that advisors need a bit of help to understand actually what is the good practice with some of these rules, which which have been implemented, but, but it's a real challenge for them. Um, let's talk about the 10% fall rule. Just for readers at home, Mike, explain what that is and how it relates to disclosure. Yeah, so I think with, uh, with everything, um, going back to the point I said at the beginning that most of these rules were well thought out and well principled and well intentioned. Mm. There's always you always kind of leave yourself a little caveat with with with, with making statements like that. The ten percent rule is absolutely in that in that space. So this is probably the one rule which is absolutely barking and makes no sense whatsoever. And I think if you put a Twitter poll out to ask, does anybody think that this makes any sense, you'll get something pretty close to a hundred percent. It'll only be somebody like me doing it for a laugh on Twitter and posting, yes, it does make sense just to just to screw your voting up. Simply because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't fit with the normal uh, yeah, journey so, of investing. So the, yeah, so the rule is if your portfolio, if your investments have fallen by 10% over one reporting period, which is a which is a calendar quarter, and they're managed on a discretionary basis, then the client needs to be notified within 24 hours of that fall occurring mm -hmm. to say that your portfolio has dropped. So essentially, you're getting a letter saying, dear Ollie, great news, your portfolio has dropped by 10%. Yeah. And I think the, the bit which hasn't been thought through at all, it seems, around that is actually the what that means for the client and the, the danger that there are kind of real unintended consequences. Because if a client freaks out at that point and yeah. switches into cash or sacks their advice or whatever it is, they're probably doing that at the worst moment in time. Indeed, indeed. This relates to the point that it, you know, it's good to be engaged and it's good to have transparency, but it also can be problematic to be too engaged, right, yeah. that people can do. And, and ultimately, these, these letters, obviously, they don't appear magically out of a platform or a, mm. or a discretionary fund manager um, without any work going in. So it creates cost, if there's, a, if there's an administrative overhead. Mm. And yeah, these letters do get do cost to get sent out. I remember 12 months ago when the rule came in, there was much speculation around um, how often these letters would be sent and lots of 
people far more clever than I did crunched kind of historic asset returns to come up with some sort of frequency around it. I was pretty confident that Sod's Law would mean that we would get those letters sent at some point last year. Yeah. And I hate to say I told you so, but inevitably, <laughs> yeah, as soon as that rule came in, we had some significant falls in the last quarter in particular. So, yeah, a lot of clients have, a number of clients have received those letters in the last quarter telling them their portfolio has gone down. Mm. And, you know, it's set to be potentially a, you know, a continuingly tumultuous environment in the markets. Um, on that note, let's talk about ex post disclosure, um, because by 29th of April 2019, I understand, IFAs must send clients document which outlines the costs and charges for advice, products on SIP platforms and investment management, as well as the performance of the portfolio in percentage pounds and pence. You can tell I, I memorised this myself, but I'm not reading it from a, from a set of notes. Um, so, it, so this should show you know, what the portfolio was worth 12 months ago and what it was worth 12 months later. This is all going to be a real test for IFA's running model portfolios, isn't it? I think it's a test for IFA's full stop, um, almost irrespective of how, how your, your investment proposition is, is, is delivered. Um, the, the nature of it, as you say, it's individualised and personalised for each individual client. So if you are running model portfolios, you can't run it at individual portfolio level. You've got to do it for each individual client invested in the portfolio. The, I think the reality is, and we've, we've done quite a bit of research around this, which um, is available on our website to, to download to see exactly how platforms are, are, are approaching this. The, the good news is that every platform is taking on res res responsibility themselves. So they're sending out the letters to all of their clients and will be disclosing all of the charges in pounds and pence which are being paid. So that means the platform charge, obviously, yeah. but also the charges which they're facilitating. So the advice charge, the asset management charges, and if there's a DFM or wrapper charges, anything else which is in the mix gets set out to the client in pounds and pence. Um, I guess the bad news from an advisor's point of view is um, that those letters are being sent to your clients, whether you like it or not, directly by the platform, and say. you have no involvement in that process whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So your clients are going to wake up one morning and the postman will deliver them that letter. And if they've got assets on a number of different platforms, then inevitably those will be different letters on different days as well, just to mm -hmm. just to compound the, the potential issue there. So I think advisors need to engage with this and they need to understand what the platforms are doing and they need to manage that client relationship to make sure the client doesn't freak out when they see those letters. Sure. For a set of legislation that's supposedly all about joined up thinking, this doesn't feel particularly joined up in terms of the communication side, does it? I mean, particularly concerning tech. We're talking about letters and notifications, people getting more than one letter, more than one set of notifications. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the good news is platforms have got a tremendous track record in delivering technology change with no issues whatsoever and nothing ever goes wrong with a platform. <laughs> so I'm sure there won't be any issues at all on that on that side of things. Aegon and Aviva, if you're uh, listening, you know, avid fans. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a very, very long list you could add to for, for those two, to be fair. Um, I, but I think it's... It's, it's framing it as the understanding of what the client is getting. As you said, it's a 12-month it's a window which is going through. And for in some cases, that could mean that the, the markets have been bumpy and actually the returns mm -hmm. you've enjoyed prior to that are not necessarily reflected in the fact that you've been paying a charge of these, these level of charges over the last 12 months. Mm. We've, you've 
just been speaking about platforms. Uh, tell me about platforms and inducements. This was something that you mentioned in our sort of pre-chat. Yeah, so jump, jumping back into Mifid, um, and again, I think this is this is another example of where I feel the FCA needs to do a bit more work of just kind of focusing the Mifid requirements onto retail advisors and saying actually. Mm-hmm this is what we would consider to be good practice, this is what we would consider to be poor practice. They used to be really good about that um, a few years ago, um, particularly on kind of some of the suitability work and replacement business work and all of that stuff they did, but it's kind of, it's seemed, they seem to have lost their mojo around that in, in the last couple of years. There was a statement in the platform paper that as part of the work they were doing through the market study there, they felt that there was some advisors who were potentially in breach of the MIFID inducement rules by use of uh, functionality such as white labeling functionality from a platform, yeah. even there was some mention of bulk rebalancing functionality as well. And it, as I said, that was about one or two sentences, I'm badly paraphrasing from the platform study, mm. but with very, very little kind of um, guidance and expanding around what that means as well. Mm. And again, I don't think that it feels like it's an area where there's kind of systemic issues there and that advisors are uh, fundamentally doing the wrong thing, but I think they, they would benefit from having a bit more help to understand actually what good practice looks like. Mm. Uh, this leads on to sort of a more politically charged question for me, which is uh, obviously we're in a, a political environment where you know Europe is, uh, uh, is um, shall we say, Britain is distancing itself from from its European uh, friends. Uh, will, there, will there be any opportunity to amend, change, or update this legislation? I mean, I'm assuming there won't be a MIFID three, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think actually, I mean, let's let's not talk about politics because we we <laughs> might need to kind of reclassify this pod- podcast as being X-rated. Um, um, I was sad enough to be looking at an FCA document that came out this morning around cryptocurrencies, mm. which is um, will be a real hoot, I'm sure, when I read that properly. But that, that paper talks about the impl- implications of the EU withdrawal. Um, the period as it stands, the implementation period is intended to operate from 29th of March 2019 until at least the end of December mm. 2020. Intended to. Insert your own punchline in political views at this point. <laughs> what that does mean is that firms, asset managers, trading venues, etc. are going to continue to benefit from the passporting that occurs between the UK and the EAS they do today, which means you have to stay compliant with MIFID 2 mm. till at least the end of December 2020. Mm. So don't hold your breath for the FCA to back out some of these some of these rules. It's certainly going to be the case until 2020. And then I think you also have, then have to consider whether or not you want to have parity with the rest of Europe and how, yeah. how they're operating and all, all, all of that. I think the, the bit it does raise concerns for me, it goes back to this requirement around the need we see to put out information around good practice and best behaviours. And actually, mm. as a UK-based retail financial advisor who tends to operate in this way, these are the types of things you should be doing. And this is, as I say, sharing examples of good practice, sharing examples of poor practice that, um, that, is, that, that is occurring, making sure advisors can do the right thing. The, the issue I think that uh, Brexit brings into this is that because a lot of these rules we're talking about are pan-European, any good practice which needs to get issued needs to cover most of Europe. You can't kind of say to a UK advisor, we consider this to be good practice yeah. if it's actually misaligned with how continental Europe are working. So my 
the, the question I don't know the answer to around this is how the FCA can work in an environment where actually we are breaking away from Europe. Do they get to have that dialogue with the, the rule makers mm. in the EU or are we actually adopting the rules but not actually having in, any influence in how they're implemented and any mm. kind of post implementation communications which go out there. I think that feels to me that that would be a really unfortunate byproduct of Brexit if we're having to adopt a set of rules that are imposed on us through through Europe, but not actually having enough say yeah. on actually what is good practice and how they're implemented. That's a very interesting point because when we spoke to Nikki Morgan, the chair of the Treasury Select Committee at the back end of the last year, she seemed to hint that Andrew Bailey's team's efforts to liaise and keep an open dialogue with European regulators had been frustrated by the European negotiators in Brussels, um, which raises an interesting question about how easy it will be going forward to have a relationship there. Yeah, um, I can't imagine it helps, certainly. Yeah, 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 sure. Well, I won't force you into making any comments or <laughs> scurrilous opinions about that. I have one final question, which is about recording requirements. Um, most IFAs, it seems to me, record their meetings in some manner anyway, you know, jotted down or they have someone in the meeting to take notes. Um, does MIFID 2's rules actually have a material impact on their kind of time management and their workload in a, in a, you know, in a, in a cost sense? Not really. I think it, it's, it's, it's another little factor they need to, kind of another box they need to tick to make sure they're compliant. But as you said, most advisors were kind of in this space, this space anyway. I think the, the, bits, it's, the bits we see really starting to bite in terms of costs of, on an advice business is really around kind of the grunts of the investment proposition. And if you are running model portfolios, the, the need to do additional disclosure and personalising that makes the... The, the processes that previously used to be kind of quite efficient for running model portfolios, in some cases, very, very inefficient and much, much more costly than you were previously used to. Mm, okay, um, just some just some time to read your thoughts before we go. A uh, couple of people who replied to us uh, online uh, with their views. Paul Stocks, who is Financial Services Director at Dobson & Hodge, says that when some platforms can't issue accurate information 12 months on, then yes, MIFID 2 is a definite pain. And, he says, when compliant charges information is circa 10 plus pages long, the question is whether clients will read, let alone understand it. Now, you were saying, you were saying, Mike, you know, that you're hearing that a lot from advisor firms. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would... I would kind of point the issue a little bit more at asset managers than perhaps platforms, um, okay. partly showing kind of my heritage of having worked for a platform previously. And so I kind of tend to fight those corner, their, their corner a little bit more. But um, a lot of the cases, and particularly as we stand at the moment with the ex post disclosures about to be issued, mm -hmm. in a number of instances, the, the data required to go into those reports hasn't arrived from the asset managers yet. And as much as the platforms are sitting there saying, we want to do this, they're waiting on the asset managers to really? actually get their, get their side of things. I mean, all of that's kind of, it's almost like a moot point really from an advisor's and a client's point of view. Somebody somewhere in the system isn't ready yeah. yet. They and, just want to be getting on he, with it. And he just wants to get on and deal with it. So. Mm. Dave Lamb, owner and advisor at Gibson Lamb says, the idea is sound, this is more of the same thing. Clients should know the total cost of their portfolio, however, that the methodology is a disaster of red tape and ridiculously complex stuff that clients just don't give a donkeys about. Negative transaction costs, he says, clients don't believe that and ignore it all. Um, do you, do you really think clients care that much? I think they do. 
Um, I think we're about to find the answer to that out. We mm. quite often kind of hear the speculation of do clients care about this and my client values the relationship that I, yeah. they, they have with me. It's not just about investment returns and costs. We'll see. These client, clients are going to get a letter saying clearly in pounds and pence and not, not just percentage, you've paid 1%, which nobody understands what that means. You have paid this amount in pounds and pence. Mm. So, yeah, we, it's an interesting social experiment. If nothing yeah. else, we'll find out the answer to that pretty soon. I think in the next year, everything will become clear. Um, we'll end on a positive note. Anthony Morrow, our dear friend, chief executive of Evester, says, I'm a big fan of Mifid 2. As with the Godfather trilogy, it's so much better than the first one. Greater transparency and disclosure can only be a good thing for customers and the outcomes they enjoy. How lovely. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I need to watch all three of The Godfather again just to be certain. I've, I've got a sneaking suspicion the first one of those is the best. Um, Godfather 2 is, I mean, Godfather 2 is the best. I don't know. Perhaps we'll debate that in the next episode. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to leave it there. My sincere thanks to you, Mike, for giving us your insights. Really appreciate it and always a pleasure to have you here. Um, we'll leave it there for today. The only thing that remains to be said is that if you like what we do with this podcast, podcast then do subscribe on itunes and if you're feeling really generous leave us a review also if you have ideas or views you want read out on air then don't hesitate to contact us at news at citywire.co.uk join us next week when we'll be dissecting the pensions dashboard not literally but we'll be chatting about it uh, until then it's thanks and goodbye <laughs>